Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the collusion between the right-wing Supreme Court majority and the far-right phony front groups claiming to represent popular interest groups, but are more often than not a wealthy individual and a few activists for hire who bring the cases that Roberts and company want to rule on, which are funded by dark money from one or another of Leonard Leo's front groups, which helped fund the Republican state's attorney generals who were behind killing the student loan relief, the front group supporting the lying Christian web designers' victory for anti-gay bigotry, and the phony Students for Fair Admissions front group that brought the affirmative action case to the all-too-eager justices to rule on. Joining us is Garrett Epps, a legal affairs editor at the Washington Monthly who has taught constitutional law at American University, the University of Baltimore, Boston College, Duke, and the University of Oregon. He's the author of American Epic, Reading the U.S. Constitution, and we will discuss his latest article at the Washington Monthly, John Roberts's Tiresome Act. Then we'll look into the large-scale Israeli military raid on the Janine refugee camp against increasingly militant young Palestinians alienated from their aged and inept leaders who they feel have failed to protect them from the encroachment of increasingly emboldened Israeli settlers supported by the increasingly religious nationalist Israeli government. Joining us is Khaled El-Gindi, Senior Fellow and Director of the Program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli Affairs at the Middle East Institute, He previously served as an advisor to the Palestinian leadership on permanent status negotiations with Israel from 2004 to 2009 and was a key participant in the Annapolis negotiations in November 2007. His latest book is Blind Spot, America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. Then finally, we'll assess the extent to which Putin has lost his monopoly on violence in Russia and whether he will eventually be charged by the International Criminal Court for genocide in Ukraine and speak with Alexander Motel, a professor of political science at Rutgers University, a specialist on Ukraine, Russia and the USSR and on nationalism, revolutions, empires and theory. He's the author of Imperial Ends, The Decay, Collapse and Revival of Empires and Why Empires Reemerge, Imperial Collapse and Imperial Revival in Comparative Perspective. And he has an article at The Hill, Putin and Prigozhin are both war criminals. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community 
in post-truth America. And joining us now is Garrett Epps, a legal affairs editor at the Washington Monthly who has taught constitutional law at American University, the University of Baltimore, Boston College, Duke, and the University of Oregon. He's the author of American Epic, Reading the U.S. Constitution, and his latest article at the Washington Monthly is John Roberts's Tiresome Act. Welcome to Background Briefing, Garrett Epps. Howdy, Ian. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, and I want to talk about John Roberts's Tiresome Act, but he's been very busy in the last uh, few days. Uh, the court ended affirmative action in college admissions. They stopped uh, President Biden from cancelling student debt, and they sanctified bigotry by a lying web designer who was not even in business when she said a gay couple wanted her to work for them, claiming it was a violation of her religious liberty, even though the potential customer she cited was a straight man married for 15 years. So just let me get my head around that for a second, Garrett. Now it's open season to discriminate against millions of gay American couples on the word of this lying Christian bigot. Uh, and the damage is done. There's no, <laughs> there's no way to hold them accountable, right? They are the final word. Uh, well, in in our system, you know that that is formally the case. I mean, uh, there are ways that uh, we can push back uh, against adverse Supreme Court rulings, and uh, politically, they can be very powerful mobilizing tools, um, but. In terms of where the Constitution is at this moment, uh, the answer is, you know, it is where these judges say it is. And what's really fascinating, Ian, and that you alluded to fairly quickly, is that of these three huge decisions that came down in the last week of the court, that is 303 Creative, the uh, gay web designer case, um, Students for Fair Admissions, which is the affirmative action case, and finally, the student loan case, there are very serious questions about each of those cases about whether they're real cases uh, or whether they're just put-up jobs that are thrown together by the advocacy groups, the right-wing attorneys general, um, and the collusion of the court. Uh, We've certainly heard a lot about 303 Creative in the last couple of days, but, you know, I was writing about this months ago that Even if this individual who turns out to be a myth, even if everything were the way they said about that, the case was still made up because this web designer had not ever gone on the market to sell web designs and the state of Colorado, she had never turned down a gay client and the state of Colorado had never prosecuted her. So she came to the court and said, you know, I might want to do wedding websites. Those seem like a a good thing to do, but I'm terribly worried because if I do, then maybe a same-sex couple will come along and I happen to religiously object to that. Uh, And if I tell them I won't do it, then they may complain to the Civil Rights Commission. And if they complain to the Civil Rights Commission, the Civil Rights Commission might enforce something against me and that would just be terrible. Uh, You know, it's a little bit like, claiming that, uh, you know, you need your street cleared because otherwise a safe might fall on your head. Uh, so it was a phony case. might land, yeah. 
it was a phony case from day one. And the fact that they there are additional falsehoods in the record doesn't surprise me one bit. All of these three cases are put up jobs. Hmm. Well, this is not the first, though. There's a system here. There's a history of put up jobs. If you go back to Citizens United, that was this character, David Bossy, who was fired by Dan Burton, the Republican chair of the, of the committee that Bossy was working for. What Bossy did was, when Webster Hubble, Clinton's first nominee for attorney general, was in jail, he took the recordings of Webster Hubble talking to his lawyer and doctored them to try and incriminate Webster Hubble in some bizarre funding scheme from some guy called Riadi. And when Webster Hubble said, in reality, he turned that into Riadi. It was even too much for Dan Burton. They fired David Bossie. So this is the kind of guy he is. And he, can, he makes some bogus documentary about Hillary Clinton attack job on her. And then the Supreme Court decided, oh, this, we have to take this one up. And they made the most, one of the most consequential decisions in history based upon this crook and liar and fabricator and known as Citizens United which has brought untold amount of money and, and dark money into our politics. Well, you know, the thing about Citizens United is, uh, uh, and I say this firsthand, I never saw the citizens. Um, I actually lived in Washington, D.C. for 12 years until quite recently, and uh, Citizens United's headquarters was on my block on Pennsylvania Avenue, so I had to walk past it almost every day. And on, in only one time during that entire 12-year period did I see a human being inside the so-called headquarters of this group. And he looked to me like uh, a construction tradesman or something who was looking around to see whether pipes need fixing. There is no Citizens United. There's no citizens in Citizens United. There were no students in Students for Fair Admission. There, there are certain advocacy groups and certain conservative advocates who are known to the majority of the court who contrive these cases in order to get the results that they want. Um, and uh, the, we all know the names of these groups. They're uh, the Alliance Defending Freedom or the Beckett Fund for these various religion cases, Citizens United, um, you know, others like that. And everybody knows what's going on. Other parties challenge, you know, the, the standing of the case and the court blows past it if they want to because they want to get to a certain result. Um, and the result is that you have cases decided without any facts, any genuine facts surrounding them, uh, which permits the conservative majority to write uh, insanely broad decisions. Well, in the broadest sense, though, this is the usurpation of power from the uh, judicial branch overruling the both the legislative and executive branch because these decisions from this court, particularly these latest decisions, show that the ultra-right majority on the Supreme Court, they're looking for and using whatever tool they can come up with to invalidate what they don't like. I mean, they, it's, these are policies they don't like. And democratic government... It's not supposed to work that way. The unelected justice aren't supposed to be able to, at whim, veto policies they don't like. You know, that's not the way the system is designed, is it? Their idea is that the decisions have to comport with the law as opposed to them 
deciding whether they like the decisions or not. Well, you know, this has been a conundrum throughout American history, and, and the, the best results that have come out of the court have been when the court is careful to undertake cases that have facts and try to conform the decision they're making to the facts. Uh, that's what judges are supposed to do. And the truth is, you know, the piece you referred to earlier, I, I said that Chief Justice Roberts has begun to remind me of Cher, the Alicia Silverstone character in Clueless, who basically says, boring, if people try to talk to him about facts. He, he's not interested in facts. He's interested in these uh, glib quotations, um, partial quotations that are taken from Frederick Douglass or uh, James Madison or whatever else in order to achieve the result he wants to achieve. Now, I've studied a great deal about Chief Justice Roberts. And, you know, from the very moment he arrived in uh, Washington, D.C. as a, a youthful, you know, in his late 20s, early 30s lawyer um, in the Reagan Justice Department, he's had his eye on two things, the Voting Rights Act and uh, affirmative action. Uh, that's This has been a, a vendetta on his part over a 30-some year period to get rid of affirmative action by any means necessary. And he's got the votes to do it. I think the majority on this court is well aware that their majority is not necessarily guaranteed to be in place uh, for any particular period of time, and they want to get things done now. And you can see that in the gun cases, you can see it in the religion cases, uh, you see it in this affirmative action case, you see it uh, in Sackett versus EPA and West Virginia versus EPA, where they've gone uh, tooth and nail after the federal government's power to clean up the environment, they are in putting in place a conservative policy, policy agenda that they hope will shackle uh, the democratic system for half a century to come. Well, the three though, that Trump appointed are all relatively young, right? Clarence Thomas is the oldest. I don't know, is it Alito the second oldest? So there's not yeah. going to be any, any changes soon in terms of of getting back to some equilibrium or <laughs> a possible liberal majority. That seems to be way in the distance. Well, you know, there are a lot of things that can happen um, to a Supreme Court majority that are, you know, short of death. And we are looking at a crisis that is severe enough. You know, the court has had as of today, three great crises in American history. The first that followed that followed Dred Scott in 1857 and contributed to the uh, onset of the Civil War and also discredited the court for more than a generation. Um, the second is the 1937 crisis where President Roosevelt sought to add justices to the court. And we're now in crisis number three. It is, it is that serious. Uh, this court is is has blundered so badly in so many different ways that they are now um, confronting what really is almost an existential threat, by which I, I don't mean that Congress is going to come and tear down the Marble Palace and send the justices packing. Of course, that's not going to happen. But the court's role in American history and American politics 
has changed, has waxed and waned over the years. And there's real danger to this institution. They are running it into the ground. Well, we've talked about Citizens United a little while ago, Garrett, and the dark money that Leonard Leo has been pouring into choosing these judges, both on the federal bench and on the Supreme Court. He's basically got pretty much all of these, the six right-wing majority <coughs> appointed, and before that, Scalia. And that's just one man, and he's got unlimited amounts of money. And interestingly enough, his fingerprints are on all of these th cases that just came down in the last few days. The Attorney General's organization, they funded that. Uh, they're the ones that brought the case stopping the cancellation of student debt. Affirmative action, that phony, uh, what students for fair admissions, whatever it's called, they funded that. And also they funded these political activists in Colorado behind this lying Christian woman. Well, so. let's not let's not stop there. They're funding the justices we've discovered. This is why I'm describing this as an existential crisis. Is that it? It the court the court I I like to say the court it may be suffering multiple organ failure. Um, they are doing a very bad job as judges. These are very poorly done opinions. Never mind what you think of the result. It's almost like they're they're sort of saying, you know, come on. We don't really need to to go into this. You know, we think it. Um, the court has got no ethics uh, provisions that they're resisting ethics provisions as strongly as they can. And we are learning more and more each day about the influence of these, not just Leonard, but all of these wealthy billionaires who have brought their firepower to bear on the court you know, with uh, uh, Alito's luxury trips to uh, Alaska, with Thomas's $100,000 trip on the super yacht to, to Bali. Um, we've found out that by funneling money into the Supreme Court Historical Society, Rob Schenck and his religious right organization was able to gain privileged access to the justices and to pray with them and to tell them that America supported them in their crusade against abortion. I mean, literally to lobby the court, literally to go to the United States Supreme Court with a checkbook in their hands and write checks and enrich the justices and enrich the institution and disclose none of it. And this is an ethical crisis of a kind we have may not have ever seen, but certainly have not seen in 100 years. Well, interesting enough, Garrett, the Supreme Court just took up a case, Moore versus the United States, which is designed to prevent the Congress from passing the billionaire surtax bill, where Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and others want to put on a surtax for billionaires to deal with rising income inequality and, and the lack of revenues coming in from the super rich since they don't pay their taxes. And they're, so they're, they're already cutting that one off at the pass because, after all, we at least know two of those Supreme Court justices, Thomas and Alito, they serve the interests of billionaires. They're the guys they hang out with. That's their constituency. Well, not just them. Remember, John, John Roberts himself is a multimillionaire. He's the richest justice by far. His, his net worth may be as high as 20 million. We don't know the precise figures. 
but he did spend uh, a number of years in corporate practice uh, before going on the bench, representing the very biggest companies. And uh, of course, uh, money is being funneled to his wife uh, for her legal recruiting efforts. Um, the uh, Certainly nobody wants to say that a, uh, a justice's uh, spouse can't work. Um, but on the other hand, this amount of money seems disproportionate to the value of the service that Mrs. Roberts has been providing. And the same is true with, with Ginny Thomas, who's been getting money funded to her explicitly disguised false declarations being made about the source of this money in order to uh, enrich uh, the justice. And we may infer to influence his policy or legal positions. So the court is setting itself up as, you know, the final house of legislation. You've got to get through the House, the Senate and the president, and then the court will decide if you can do it. Uh, they are not in a position to maintain this role in our government. They they lack the credibility. They are losing credit every day with with the public. I never thought I'd see a time when the court's polls were this low. And, you know, I have to think, and I've, I've spent a lot of time researching this and thinking about it, I have to think that basically what has happened to the court, basically how this majority has lost its way, is that in 2001, the court decided Bush versus Gore and decided we, the majority of this court, will tell you who your president is and whom you may elect as president. And that was a bad mistake. But what's worse is they got away with it. What's worse is that it didn't affect public uh, perceptions of the court. What's worse is that the public opinion surveys still continue to show the court as being the most credible branch of the government. And at a certain point, I think, consciously or unconsciously, these people just decided anything goes. We can do anything we want. We have the power. This is our chance. We're going to lock this in for generations to come. I don't think it's going to work, but I think the results are going to be very negative for everybody. Well, Garrett Epps, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you, Garrett. And again, I've been speaking with Garrett Epps, who's a legal affairs editor at the Washington Monthly, who's taught constitutional law at American University, the University of Baltimore, Boston College, Duke University, and the University of Oregon. He's the author of American Epic, Reading the U.S. Constitution. And his latest article at the Washington Monthly is John Roberts's Tiresome Act. We're going to get a restation break and back looking into the large-scale Israeli military raid on the Janine refugee camp against increasingly militant young Palestinians alienated from their aged and inept leaders who they feel have failed to protect them from the encroachment of increasingly emboldened Israeli settlers supported by an increasingly religious nationalist Israeli government. From the war against disorder, from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay, Democracy is coming to the USA. Well, 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Hala Gendi, who's a senior fellow and director of the program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli affairs at the Middle East Institute. He previously served as an advisor to the Palestinian leadership on permanent status negotiations with Israel from 2004 to 2009, and was a key participant in the Annapolis negotiations in November of 2007. His latest book is Blind Spot, America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. Welcome to Background Reefing, Halid Elgindi. Thanks for having me. So, Halid, what uh, is the objective here with this Israeli military raid on the Palestinian refugee camp in Jenin so far? Eight Palestinians have been killed, including three children, and airstrikes have hit homes, a theater and a mosque. The internet's down, electricity and water supplies are cut off, and people have uh, been evacuated out of the refugee camp. So what's the objective? What are the Israelis doing, and what are they after? Well, as as your listeners may or may not know, there's been a, a sort of uh, insurgency going on in the West Bank, an uprising of sorts uh, over the past year or so. Uh, it's gotten significantly worse this year, particularly since the new uh, extremist government uh, took uh, took over uh, in Israel. Uh, we've seen a major escalation in violence from uh, the Israeli army, uh, as well as in violent responses from uh, from Palestinian militants. And so uh, so this latest attack on Janine refugee camp is, uh, I, I think, uh, an attempt to to quash this uh, uprising uh, and uh, any form of of Palestinian resistance to Israel's occupation. I think it's it's sort of standard procedure. Israel responds uh, to uh, any kind of. Uh, dissent, but particularly if it's if it's armed uh, with uh, brute military force. Uh, so the goal here is to to quash Palestinian resistance uh, and to pacify uh, Janine uh, in order to go back to the status quo of uh, of Israel quietly uh, colonizing and and militarily occupying uh, the West Bank. So what's going on between the White House and Netanyahu then? Because Netanyahu made this statement today. America has provided Israel with moral and political backing against those who would wipe us out, the only Jewish state. Security cooperation with the U.S. has never been better. Intelligence sharing has never been deeper. And of course, the United States State Department said it in a statement earlier today that the U.S. supported Israel's security and right to defend its people. Yeah. My understanding that there's friction between the, the White House and Netanyahu, uh, not the least over uh, not having their the security minister, Ben Gvir, and the finance minister, Smotrich, uh, visit the United States, right-wing members yeah. of Netanyahu's cabinet. And also, I, I understand that the White House was unhappy with Israel's settlement plans on the West Bank as well. So why is Netanyahu saying what he's saying today? Well, I think uh, it's it's in some ways precisely because the administration has voiced some uh, dissatisfaction with the direction that Israel is going, not just in terms of things like Israeli settlements and violence in the West Bank, but maybe even more so 
things like the planned judicial overhaul that this government, that especially the the hardcore far right extremists in the government are pushing for essentially overhauling the Israeli judiciary to um, uh, to to eliminate its independence as a as a branch of government, which. You know, in response to that, we're seeing these weekly protests in Israel that have gone on for for several months. And the administration has voiced its opposition to that uh, proposed uh, judicial overhaul. And and one of the ways it's expressed its dissatisfaction is that they haven't invited Netanyahu to the White House for a formal state visit, which is which is customary whenever there's a new government in Israel within two, three months or so uh, for the U.S. president uh, to host the Israeli prime minister. That hasn't happened. I think Netanyahu is feeling uh, the, the sting of, 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 a, of kind of an arm's length uh, response from the Biden administration. And so he's having to play up his American uh, bona fides, if, if you will, right, that the U.S. Is, stands with Israel, that the, that the administration uh, is backing uh, Israel. And, and that's certainly true when it comes to what's happening in the West Bank, uh, like the current Janine raid. The U.S. essentially has embraced the uh, Israeli uh, narrative that this is in, in some way a, an act of self-defense or they're fighting terrorists or something along those lines. The U.S. more or less uh, adopts that same uh, framing, um, you know, regardless of the actual uh, realities of the issue. Uh, but, but for the most part, the Netanyahu, I think, is trying to play up that the relationship with the United States is strong despite the fact that he hasn't been invited, despite the fact that, uh, the, that the Americans are showing some displeasure uh, with him. I, I think... The, the attack on Janine and the, the new talking points coming out of Washington, more or less greenlighting Israeli military operations um, is something that he's seeking to exploit to show, you know, look, there really isn't any daylight between us and the U.S. administration. But, Harley, that indicates, though, doesn't it, that the U.S. does have leverage. If the Israeli people would be, and, is, and clearly Netanyahu is a skilled politician, if the Israeli people felt that this government, this far right wing government in Israel was losing support from the Americans and from particularly from the American government and that they were not happy with Netanyahu, then why shouldn't the U.S. double down and do something about this government? Because it clearly is taking the country in, a, in the direction of religious nationalism, which is inevitably going to create friction, if not a full scale you know, into father. Uh, uh, that's that's true, and it's and it, the U.S. does in fact have leverage, quite a bit of leverage, at least three point eight billion dollars worth of leverage, and and that's just in, you know the amount that the U.S. gives Israel in unconditional military aid every year. Uh, the U.S. also has other points of leverage in the United Nations, for example. The U.S. doesn't have to veto. Uh, everything that comes along that is critical of Israel uh, or to block Palestinian initiatives uh, in other international forums. Um, so the U.S. has quite a bit of leverage, even if it's 
just withholding or the threat of withholding some of the many, many uh, favors uh, that the U.S. gives Israel as part of the special relationship. Now, the problem is that Israel's government has moved more and more to the right. It's become more and more extreme, and its actions on the ground reflect that. We're seeing record numbers of settlement uh, expansion, uh, settlement housing units, uh, new units, 13,000 in this year alone, uh, in, in just this half of 2023, is more than any previous year uh, uh, before now. And we're only halfway through the year. So uh, we're seeing more violence from this government. And, and so the reality is that Israel has become more extreme. Its actions have become more extreme. But American talking points have stayed the same. And that is, you know, all about this unshakable, unbreakable commitment to Israel and so on and so forth. And it, it, there's a real dissonance with the actual reality on the ground. When the U.S. says, you know, we want the parties to de-escalate, we call for calm, uh, we want parties to respect uh, the agreements that were reached in security summits in Aqaba and Sharm el-Sheikh a few months ago, uh, but at the same time then says Israel has a right to defend itself when they launch a massive, hugely disproportionate military operation, uh, then those two are in contradiction with each other. You can't, on the one hand, green light uh, uh, Israel's actions and at the same time call for calm. I mean, the, the two just are completely contradictory. So what explains then the White House's lack of pulling the trigger on the leverage that they have? Is it, is it because an election year is heading up? Why? I mean, there's no love lost between Biden and Netanyahu, but Biden's been a huge supporter of Israel forever. So, I mean, what do you think Biden should be doing? Uh, Well, I mean, the reason uh, I think has a lot to do with the person of Joe Biden himself. He is personally um, committed to Israel, I think, in in a deeply ideological way, in, in, in a personal way or I think he's committed to an Israel that doesn't really exist anymore and maybe never existed. I think he has a very romanticized personal attachment to Israel. So that's part of it. It's personal and ideological. Domestic politics is is certainly another part of it. Um, You know, taking a hit from Republicans and from the pro-Israel lobby as we're going into an election year is probably... Uh, one of the considerations that, you know, one of the things you're trying to avoid, um, at, you know, going into 2024, um, even though uh, polls and and politics show that there's much more capacity, in, especially in the Democratic Party, for policies that hold Israel accountable, that um, that aren't reflexively and uncritically supportive of everything that Israel does. There is a much bigger appetite in the Democratic Party for doing that, but it's not something that the Biden administration in particularly in particular seems willing to do for, you know, as I said, for a whole host of reasons. And so so that's, you know, that's why where we are where we are. So do you think then that what's happening now with this religious nationalist government in Israel uh, wanting to expand and 
basically treating the Palestinians with contempt. And I guess their end game is to sort of make life so difficult that somehow they'll slink off to Jordan. I never understood what the ultimate end game of Israel's religious nationalists are vis-a-vis the Palestinians. But as they turn up the heat and as young Palestinians become more and more frustrated and feel that the situation is hopeless, particularly with their own aging leadership that seems to be out of touch with young Palestinians, is another intifada inevitable? I mean, we can call it whatever you want, a third intifada or a new intifada. I mean, the reality is that there is an armed insurgency happening on the ground now that has been going on and off for the past year plus, year and a half or so, uh, in one form or another. Of course, it has become more intensive uh, over time. And uh, it's not, it's different from previous, you know, from the, the first intifada of the late 80s and the second intifada of the early 2000s um, in, in a whole host of ways. But there's no question that there already, you know, there is an armed rebellion that that is happening. And so we call it an intifada or not, it doesn't really matter. Um, the, the reality is the same. Uh, and uh, a part of that reality is that, as you mentioned, you have this Palestinian leadership that is increasingly weak, increasingly uh, ineffective. Um, they've lost control of, uh, of the very places where this armed rebellion is centered in places like Janine and Nablus in the Northern West Bank. Um, and the, the, the growing weakness of the Palestinian Authority and the, uh, it, the, the growth of this Rebellion, I think, go hand in hand. Um, people are angry with the Palestine, their leadership for being unable to protect them. Um, and in fact, they're not allowed to protect them. Palestinian Authority security services under the Oslo Accords are required. Anytime the Israeli military enters, they are required to stand down, to withdraw and leave the area. So it's also one of the reasons uh, why settlers can rampage through Palestinian towns, burn down homes and cars and, and businesses uh, uh, with more or less impunity. The Israeli army is not interested in preventing those attacks, and the Palestinian Authority is not allowed to arrest or confront Israeli settlers. So there are the constraints of this, this Oslo process, uh, and, and I think when... And part of the part of the the reaction that Palestinians are having isn't just towards their occupier. Of course, they're fed up with, you know, being denied freedom and basic rights for more than half a century. But they're also fed up with their own leaders uh, for for being totally unable to to change their situation uh, in any in any meaningful way. Well, just in closing then, is this going to impact Israel's foreign policy? It seems like the Abram Accords have got to be pretty shaky if the UAE, along with uh, Turkey, just condemned Israel. Yeah. I mean, it, that's always been a bit of a joke because Jared Kushner was just essentially Netanyahu's stenographer, wasn't he? Well, I mean, there's no no question that the the previous administration was very very close to uh, the not just the right wing in Israel, but even the far right 
in ideological terms, but also personally. You know, Jared famously used to, you know, Netanyahu, I, I forget which, they, you know, they used to spend the night in each other's homes. Um, so there is that longstanding relationship between uh, the Kushners and the Trumps and, and Netanyahu. And of course, Netanyahu's, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Trump's, you know, chief policymakers like Ambassador David Friedman and Jason Greenblatt. Um, the Abraham Accords, um, such as they are, I think, have been on ice more or less for most of this year, particularly since this new extreme government came in. Uh, the government began uh, almost immediately, if you remember, back in January, as soon as Ben Gvir, uh, the Kahanist, assumed his cabinet role as Minister of National Security, one of the first things he did was to go march up onto the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound as a, you know, as a show of, uh, uh, of you know, basically showing people who's boss. Uh, that was not well received by Palestinians, obviously. And, and, you know, since then, we saw the attacks on worshippers in Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, the violence in Jenin uh, that we see continuing to escalate. All of these things have really soured the Arab states. I think have embarrassed some, uh, like the UAE, uh, who have been quite warm towards uh, Israel. Uh, and so they've had to take positions that are kind of distancing themselves from, from Israel and, and, and being more critical and more vocal in their criticisms uh, of Israel. Because at the end of the day, wherever, whatever Arab regimes may lie as far as their relationship with Israel, at the end of the day, Arab publics still care about the Palestinian issue and care about the Al-Aqsa Mosque and care about Palestinian rights. Uh, and so on some level, Arab leaders need to be responsive to that, even though the vast majority of them are you know, dictators and, and authoritarians. Well, Halil Lagundi, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, you're welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Halid El-Gindi, who's a senior fellow and director of the Program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli Affairs at the Middle East Institute. He previously serves as an advisor to the Palestinian leadership on permanent status negotiations with Israel from 2004 to 2009 and was a key participant in the Annapolis negotiations in November of 2007. His latest book is Blind Spot, America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. We're going to take a brief station break back, accessing the extent to which Putin has lost his monopoly on violence and whether he will eventually be charged by the International Criminal Court for genocide in Ukraine. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alexander Modell, who's a professor of political science at Rutgers University, a specialist on Ukraine, Russia, and the USSR, and on nationalism, revolutions, empires, and theory. He's the author of Imperial Ends, The Decay, Collapse, and Revival of Empires, and Why Empires Reemerge: Imperial Collapse and Imperial Revival in Comparative Perspective. And he has an article at The Hill, Putin and Prigozhin are both war criminals. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alexander Motl. 
Thank you so much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Alexander. And uh, we last spoke a few months ago, and uh, you made the point that when a state loses its monopoly on violence, it is on the path to becoming a failed state. And obviously we have examples now in Sudan where the government lost its monopoly on violence and warlords emerged and a civil war followed. So how much did you think that the recent uh, so-called mutiny, as Putin calls it, of Brigosian, how much do you think we came close in, in Russia to that thesis that you outlined, which is what happens when a state loses its monopoly on violence? Well, clearly, I mean, at least as far as I'm concerned, you I mean, the, the Prigozhin failed coup attempt just is testimony to the fact that Russia is in extremely serious trouble, as a state, I mean, as a society and as the economy as well, but certainly as a state. I mean, the mere fact that this man who was able to capture a city, uh, enjoy popular support, encounter no resistance, and march to within 200 kilometers of Moscow, uh, says something about the nature of uh, the regime. Um, you know, in the end, he gave up, of course, but he could have kept on going, and it's all it's perfectly possible that he would have succeeded. Um, what is striking about this was that the military uh, was pretty much non-participatory. The population was either supportive or indifferent. If the Putin regime were strong, you would expect a massive outpouring of popular support. You would expect hundreds and thousands or at least tens of thousands of soldiers to attack uh, Prigozhin's um, people. And there were only 4,000 of them, by the way. So it wouldn't have been all that difficult. And instead, nothing. That just goes to show that Putin is losing control. He's no longer quite the legitimate dictator he thought of himself as being. Um, there's enormous infighting within the Russian political elite because it's not just Prigozhin, but he had support within the military. He seems to have had support within some elements of the secret police. This just goes to show that the state is cracking. And as you said in your introductory comments, the telltale sign of this is the mere fact of private or at least non-state-controlled armies. And remember, there are two. One is Prigozhin's, and that seems to be in the process of being tamed. Uh, but there's another one, namely that of the Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov. He has something like 10,000 now soldiers. Now, he says he supports Putin thus far, but you can easily imagine that if things were to spin out of control, his support would dry up and he would use those soldiers in order to advance Chechnya's interests. So the Prigozhin affair is extremely bad news for Putin and his regime, uh, and extremely good news for the Ukrainians. But also, uh, Gazprom has two private armies. So I don't know whether they've been brought under the control of the military, which was the request on the part of the from the Ministry of Defense that Pagosin defied. They wanted all private militias under the military and under the control of the state by July the 1st. I believe they've extended that deadline now, of course. But I'm assuming that the two Gazprom armies also will be absorbed. What's your understanding on that? I, I think you're right. You know, the, 
although on the other hand, remember, it means you know there are armies and then there are armies. I mean, uh, Kadyrov has something like ten thousand. Uh, Prigozhin, at his height, may have had around forty or fifty thousand. Prigozhin had tanks, he had aircraft, he had helicopters, he had armored personnel carriers. That's not quite the case with the, well, there are actually something like 38 to 40 private armies, but they consist of a few hundred guys. Uh, so is it a threat? Potentially, yes. Could it morph into something far more serious? Of course. But it's not quite in the same league as Prigozhin and Kadyrov. Um, the con- the wisdom amongst Russian analysts seems to be, is rather, um, that we need to possibly rethink Prigozhin's Wagner group a bit. Because, yes, on the one hand, juridically, they're a private military corporation. That's the term, company, rather. That's the term in, in Russian. But, but, the, but the Wagner group seems to have been as much of a creature of the Kremlin as of anything else, which is to say... Uh, it was created, at least in part, by Putin. It was certainly funded by the Russian regime. Um, in term, you know, both direct funds were given to the Wagner Group, and of course, indirectly, because uh, Prigozhin was able to win very lucrative contracts with the regime. And the problem was, and of course, the reason for this was that the Wagner could pretend to be private. Putin could pretend that he had nothing to do with its war crimes in Syria, uh, Africa, or Ukraine, until, of course, it became clear that Prigozhin decided that he was going to use this ostensibly, well, this formally state-supported institution and turn it against the state and turn it against Putin. Uh, Hence the betrayal. You may recall Putin said very clearly, this is a betrayal, a stab in the back. Well, I think uh, what he meant above all was that it was a stab in his back, uh, because the deal was that Prigozhin would be a, an obedient servant carrying out the will of the master. And as it is, he turned into an individual who decided, together with the assistance of some key generals, who decided that it was time for Putin to go. So, in terms of human rights abuses, and I mean, there's no question, as you, your article at the Hill, Putin and Prigozhin are both war criminals. Prigozhin, of course, has made himself famous by wielding a sledgehammer and smashing the head in of somebody that he considered a defector live on TV, and he was he was obviously proud of that. The guy is a, it's a complete psychopath, and he rose to prominence as a as a petty criminal in St. Petersburg by robbing women because they were vulnerable. Um, right. So he's a horrible person. But you can't forget how horrible Putin is. I mean, he's behind this dreadful war. And my understanding is that the FSB has these roaming death squads that go through particularly the areas that the Russians capture and they have a couple of psychopaths with them to do the actual executions, and they just select a whole bunch of people, men, women, and children, and kill them. And, you know, we know that the the U.S. thinks there's about 42,000 civilians have been killed in Ukraine, but the number is a lot higher. So will we ever get an accounting of how much blood Putin has on his hands in terms of killing civilians? 
Well, uh, once the war ends, uh, and you know, let's assume that happens relatively soon, then of course uh, experts from all sides, and again, I'm assuming that the Russians will lose, um, experts from all sides can sit down and look at the numbers, look at demographic statistics, census statistics, and things of that sort, and actually come up with reliable figures. I mean, it's clear that 42,000 is much too low. That may be the number of civilians who were killed in Mariupol alone. And then when you add, you know, the 5, 10, 15, 20 that are being killed on a daily basis, that's already, you know, multiply that by 16 months, and you get a fairly impressive figure. And that's just what we know. There may be hundreds, there may be thousands buried under the rubble. Uh, there are certainly people who were going to die as a result of the illnesses they contracted, of the mistreatment they had, and so on. So, you know, we're still far from establishing the exact death numbers. We do know that they are very high. Let's say somewhere between 50 and 100,000. We also know for sure that these civilians were targeted intentionally. I mean, they weren't just collateral damage caused by missiles that happened to strike hospitals, kindergartens, theaters, or apartment buildings, but were really intended to strike something of military value. No, the Russians virtually from the very beginning have been targeting civilian targets. Um, So there's no question, in my mind at least, that this is a mass murder that is being intentionally committed against a population uh, that is innocent and whose only crime is to be Ukrainian. And that qualifies as genocide. So will Putin be, will, will he have an appearance in The Hague? That's actually perfectly possible. Um, now, of course, if he manages to flee the country before he's deposed, then he's likely to wind up in North Korea, China, or Iran. And then God knows what will happen to him there. But if he's deposed and remains alive, whoever deposes him, and this is as likely to be someone on the extreme right as on the democratic left, uh, whoever deposes him will very likely use him as a scapegoat for all of Russia's and its army's crimes. Um, And it will be a very convenient scapegoat because then people will say, well, hey, I didn't do this. I didn't know. Um, I had nothing to do with these war crimes, with these crimes against humanity, with the genocide. It was all Putin's fault. It was all Putin's fault and a handful of his colleagues. Um, And at that point, I could easily see his being um, extradited or simply sent off to The Hague. That's perfectly possible. He knows that, by the way, as do his key propagandists. On a number of occasions, they've said, you know, hey, if we lose this thing, we're going to wind up at The Hague. So that's a palpable fear. Um, And it's one that's likely to become a reality when the Russians lose and or when Putin is deposed. But a lot of analysts fear that when Putin is deposed, there'll be an even more right-wing nationalist along the lines of Prigozhin that will take over, or Patrushev or somebody like that. So will it be out of the frying pan into the fire? Well, first of all, it's not necessarily the case that they will win. 
whoever wins because you know remember there are roughly three groups competing for power you've got let's call them the democrats who weren't exactly a bunch of casper milk toast i mean they do have support amongst the urban educated professional population you've got the extreme right wing those are the bad guys they probably have support of about 10-15% of the population and not necessarily in the cities that matter, rather in the small towns, villages, and countryside, the provinces, in other words. And then let's call them the forces of law and order, sort of the people in between. Um, So my own sense is that it's not, you know, we shouldn't assume that the bad guys will win. It could be the bad guys, but it could just as easily be the good guys or the semi-good guys, sort of the forces of law and order. Um, So that's point number one. Point number two, the question is, which of these groups, imagine, you know, let's engage in an intellectual experiment, which of these groups would be able to establish a stable government, stable regime, satisfy the population, provide butter to the population and presumably guns, which would have legitimacy, which would have the support. Uh, Well, one thing we can probably say with complete certainty is it ain't going to be the right wing. Uh, They might have the fanatics, but they're unlikely, they're highly unlikely to be able to deliver anything certainly not victory and certainly not the economic goods. Quite the opposite is the case with the, let's call them the law and order crowd in the middle, and the Democrats. They're actually capable of delivering the goods on in those, with, with regard to those aspects. So if the bad guys come to power, I would bet, and again, I'm repeating the analyses of a number of Russian analysts whom I greatly respect, Uh, I would bet that they will, yes, they will be bad news, but it will be very limited. It will be limited to a few months, possibly even, well, maybe more than just a few months, but certainly no more than about half a year. And at the end, one of the other two groups, possibly a coalition, will then come to power. So Russia may still go through hell, but there is purgatory on the other side and possibly even some form of... Uh, a very flawed heaven. Well, I guess that's a little reassuring in terms of the world's largest nuclear arsenal that the law and order people will eventually take over. But the idea of this 5,000 nukes in the hands of of warlords and organized crime groups is pretty goddamn <laughs> upsetting and frightening. So fingers crossed. And thanks for joining us, Alexander. It was my pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Alexander Modell. He's a professor of political science at Rutgers University, a specialist on Ukraine, Russia, and the USSR, and on nationalism, revolutions, empires, and theory. He's the author of Imperial Ends, The Decay, Collapse, and Revival of Empires, and Why Empires Reemerge, Imperial Collapse, and Imperial Revival in Comparative Perspective. And he has an article at The Hill, Putin and Prigozhin are both war criminals. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org 
where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Thank you.